Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I'm the managing editor of Providence. And today we are speaking with Paul Miller, a regular host or a regular uh, speaker for the Provcast and also a regular writer for the Providence Journal. And he is a professor at Georgetown University. And you are also associated with the Atlantic Council, but I don't have in my notes immediately what your position there is. What is that position? Yeah, I'm a non-resident fellow with the um, Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Okay. And so, Paul, we're going to be talking about Ukraine. And first off, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me back on the show. Appreciate it. And for listeners, I know that people will go back and listen to old podcasts, and this is a constantly changing situation. And so just kind of, I want to paint a picture of what's going on today as of April 4th. So uh, at the beginning of the war, many of us thought that Kiev would fall within days. We just didn't know how many. And some of the West felt that, you know, Kiev or Zelensky needed to surrender quickly so that, you know, to save lives and to avoid Kiev becoming like Grozny in 1994. Never mind that Russia actually lost the first Chechen war, despite Grozny's fall. And also in February, um, we expected that eastern Ukraine and the capital would fall. We thought that Russia would set up a puppet government in the capital and try to force peace terms. And then the United States and its allies would support an insurgency based out of western Ukraine. And as of this morning, April 4th, the Battle of Kiev appears to have ended, according to the Institute for the Study of War, with a Ukrainian victory. And that the Russian forces are pulling back, a.k.a. retreating, so that they can focus efforts in the Donbass and eastern Ukraine. But there are questions right now about how long those forces will take to get to that fight and how effective they will be when they get there. Also, as of this morning and this weekend, we are seeing images of Russian war crimes. And so there's a lot of anger that I'm seeing on social media and from others. So right now, it appears that Russia and Ukraine are entering into a long fight that could last for months and some suggest longer, though there are ongoing negotiations. Uh, my, my hunch is I don't hold my breath on those negotiations. And also, as of right now, we are seeing U.S. public opinion has shifted over the past month into a more bellicose, uh, bellicose position toward Russia. And that, interestingly, conservative Republicans are much more bellicose, they want a firmer policy toward Russia than either moderate Republicans or Democrats, though liberal Democrats, interestingly, are a not quite as uh, bellicose as the conservative Republicans, but they're much more bellicose than the moderates, according to these polls I've seen. So my first question is kind of now that we've set up the current situation that we're speaking into. Like, what are your initial thoughts about the current situation in Ukraine? Yeah, so th that was a really good uh, summary of where we are right now, uh, Mark, in, uh, in early April. It's just absolutely remarkable that Russia has lost the first phase of this war and has come to recognize it by pulling its forces back from Kyiv and, and now redeploying and perhaps doubling down in other areas of the country. Uh, this is not something I think anybody really expected a month ago. And uh, it's a, a huge victory for Ukraine. It's a victory for the free world. It's a victory for the West. Um, and it is, a, I think, a pretty humiliating climb down for Russia. Um, I think it does open up a possibility for how we might get to an end game here. If this war were to end in the short term, um, we might see Russia approach the negotiating table 
seeking recognition of uh, some kind of victory in the east and the south. If Russia takes the city of Mariupol and creates a land bridge between Donbass and Crimea, then that might be a face-saving way for them to claim victory and seek an exit uh, with recognition for its territorial gains in exchange for, uh, you know, for, the, for them leaving and for giving up on their maximalist war aims. Um, so that's where things stand right now. And um, I don't know, I don't think anybody knows exactly if the Ukrainians will, will take that. Oh, sorry about that. Got my dog here. Um, I, I don't know if uh, Zelensky will, uh, would take such a deal and trade away Ukrainian territory for an early end of the war. If he doesn't, then we are in for a much longer war. And uh, it's anybody's guess as to how that will end. And if I'm not mistaken, Zelensky is saying some of the terms would have to be put up to a Ukrainian popular vote, which I'm not confident some of those measures would pass. But Yeah, and of course, that's a way for him to protect himself. Any kind of concessions would be unpopular. Um, and if he makes them unilaterally, uh, he, he, he can kiss his legacy goodbye, and he won't be reelected. So seeking anything to be ratified by a referendum uh, makes a lot of sense for him politically. It's also a way for the entire Ukrainian nation to take ownership of however this war ends. It's also hard for me to imagine that as long as Putin rules Russia, the American public and several European countries will be willing to go back to normal with Russia, even though, you know, targets not regime change. But if the regime doesn't change, I don't see the Congress, for example, you know, putting most favored trade nation status um, or giving Russia back its most favored trading nation status so that we can re normalize relations. I expect there will still be long-term continued friction between the West and Russia. And so how do you think Russia's relations with the West will develop, even if there is a negotiated peace soon? So I think you're right. Russia is now an international pariah. And I don't think that's going to change so long as Putin is in office. Um, and, and rightly so. I think that's the appropriate way to handle this. Uh, Russia has acted with gross irresponsibility, uh, not just with the invasion of Ukraine back in 2014 or its escalation this year, uh, but its flouting of international norms, assassination of its officials in other countries abroad, uh, and uh, you know, undermining international norms wherever it can. So I think, it's, I think the world has lost patience with Russia. And, uh, and again, that's appropriate. That's the right thing for us to do. You're right, we should not seek regime change. However, it is uh, fine for us to say that as long as Putin remains in power, we see no evidence that uh, the international uh, that, that Russia is going to change its behavior internationally. And so we, we have no obligation to do business with them or treat them as a responsible actor on the world stage. My question, though, is um, what will it take for us to understand that China is just as deeply irresponsible? Uh, China has not invaded a neighboring sovereign country, but has done much more to undermine international norms in, in every other way, uh, committing genocide at home, flouting international law in the South China Sea, uh, bears some culpability for the coronavirus pandemic, I think, um, and uh, has pioneered the world's worst uh, sort of surveillance, totalitarian surveillance state at home. Um, China is, is, is just as bad, if not worse, than Russia in in many of these uh, respects. So I'd like to see us understand and act as if China were just as untrustworthy as Russia is. So when you say that, do you mean uh, putting sanctions onto China? Because, I mean, to decouple, I mean, we're already going through a very, 
for the United States, it's not that difficult in the grand scheme of things that there are headaches for us. But, you know, for Eastern Europe and for some of the European countries, it's much more difficult to decouple from the Russian economy, from oil and gas, and uh, from, you know, for the U.S. to decouple fully from China. Like, there, there were some, like, Trump administration, you know, with the trade war, there was some effort or some image that we were trying to decouple, even though I think the phase one of the trade deal actually linked us closer together. But how do you, what would be your time frame? You know, would we need to decouple from China? What would be the time frame for that? Or would it just be, we need to tell businesses they need to, what happened in Russia could happen in China? Yeah. So we've been able to do this to Russia because Russia is 3% of the world economy and it is not a terribly important, you know, it, it only produces energy and that, that's all it does. Um, and so that makes it relatively easy to isolate it and, uh, and, and, and harm the Russian economy without a whole lot of blowback on us. It's a little bit more on our allies, but, but it's survivable. China is about 20 plus percent of the world economy and we are far more intertwined with it. We cannot today do the kind of sanctions on China that we've done on Russia. Uh, we cannot isolate them. We can't cut them out of the world financial system in the same way. Not today, not next month, not next year. That means we need to undertake, I think, a generational decoupling of our economy from authoritarian economies generally. I, I'd apply this globally. I see no reason for us to do business with uh, evil regimes, regimes that don't respect human dignity. When we do that, when we do business with them, we are importing their standards of human conduct into our economy. Uh, we're allowing them to have leverage over our economic life. Uh, we're allowing them to, to, again, export into our country um, their standards of, of sort of uh, free speech and, uh, and labor and environmental standards. We've seen the way that China uses its market power to police speech domestically in the United States, in, in the NBA. There's just no reason to allow this. So we should undertake a generational effort to decouple ourselves from the Chinese economy and other authoritarian economies, deepen our ties within the free world, deepen our ties with Europe, with India, with Japan, with South Korea, with the free half of Africa. And there's plenty of opportunities to go around in the free world. That's what I think should be our effort. And again, this is a generational undertaking. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not the business of one presidential administration or two. The Cold War stretched out over nine presidential administrations from both parties. I think that's what we need to think of. We need to think in that sort of long-term approach to the new Cold War. One of the other things that I think is surprising, we talked about earlier the surprising fact that the Ukrainians were able to repel Russian attacks or hold the line in several places other than in the South. But the fact that in Europe you see a much harder stance toward Russia, where, for instance, I saw Lithuania yesterday is now completely free of Russian oil, I believe, or is it gas? I think Russian gas are completely severed from Russia, whereas in 2015, they were importing 100% of their gas from Russia. And then add on top of that, Germany's military spending increases, which I had not expected. So, so yeah, I think businesses need to anticipate that this, this could happen in China and they need to make... Uh, they need to consider that political risk when they're making business deals. And I think that some of that was already underway because of the pandemic. I think that there was a recognition that um, we needed maybe more control over our supply chain, needed to repatriate key industries. 
And I think that maybe the war in Ukraine will accelerate some of that thinking. And again, I think that's helpful and good. And we should, we should encourage that. There was a naivete that underscored uh, our approach to Russia and China, and particularly our private sector's approach. A naivete that um, these places were stable, that they were sound investments, that the rule of law meant anything there, uh, that contracts would be honored, and, and so forth. And none of that's true. And you can never trust your investment in an authoritarian country, uh, because at any point they could try to nationalize your industry or tax your assets. But the way that China does, they demand that they have ownership of all of the data that flows through any part of China. Uh, it's just crazy to me why any businessman would want to do business in that environment. So you mentioned that the new Cold War, and in February you wrote an article, I believe in the Dispatch, entitled, Welcome to the New Cold War. So what did you say in that article, and given that it's a little more than a month afterward, do you have any update from that? Yeah, so uh, to, to understand what I mean by the new Cold War, I should explain a little bit about how I view the last Cold War. I don't think that the Cold War was terribly unique in that great powers always view each other with rivalry and suspicion, if not outright enmity. That was true before the Cold War. It was true after it, during the Cold War. Um, the Cold War was unique in the fact that there was only two powers and the competition was heightened by an ideological dimension. But by and large, the, the, the state of rivalry and enmity that uh, characterized the Cold War, it's always true among great powers. We pretended that it stopped being true after 1991, but Russia and China didn't stop pretending. And they continued to understand themselves to be in a competition with us and with our democratic allies. And so they've spent the last three decades increasing their capacities, making themselves richer, modernizing their militaries, and getting ready for the next round of competition, which is plainly here, while we've been uh, pretending that we're not in a competition with them, and of course, busy with uh, counterterrorism uh, operations elsewhere. So now that it's unavoidably true that we are in a state of uh, endemic uh, rivalry and, and enmity with Russia, with China, and I'd also say with North Korea and Iran, uh, th that should recenter our grand strategy, how we understand our role in the world. We should understand ourselves to be the anchor of the free world, all of the other responsible nations in the world. And again, that's all of democratic Europe. That's the democratic nations of East Asia. It's, it's half of Africa. Uh, it is India and almost all of Latin America. It's, it's an overwhelming supermajority of the world that has a vested interest in a rules-based order that respects human dignity and respects accountable governance. The United States, we're the anchor of that. Um, not because we're morally superior, but because we're still, to this day, the most powerful nation in the world. Our, our relative power has declined a bit, but we're still the anchor of that order. And that means we should reinvest in our alliances. Uh, that means that uh, something like NATO is the most important institution in the world for guarding our security and, and even world security. We might want to consolidate our alliances in East Asia. We should deepen our economic ties in both of those regions in the world. We should invest in something like a community of democracies or a D10. That's, a, a, you know, instead of the G20, it would be the D10, the leading democracies of the world, as a vehicle of... Uh, uh, gathering together, leading democracies to speak with one voice on major issues of global concern, whether that's the environment, the war in Ukraine, cybersecurity, the pandemic, there's all kinds of things that we could do better when we do it together with other responsible governments. 
that's, I think, what it might look like to start recentering our grand strategy on, on this understanding of the world. We are the anchor of the free world order, and we are in competition with Russia and China and others for what the world is going to look like in the 21st century. Do you think there are any you know, mistakes from the Cold War that we can learn from? Like right now I'm reading or researching about kind of the early Cold War period, 45, 46, 40. Well, it wasn't probably technically the Cold War yet, but it's leading into the Cold War in those years. And uh, it's interesting reading you know, editorials from that time of Americans who were uncertain about whether or not the Cold War was going to be with Great Britain or the Soviet Union. And uh, there was confusion there. And I think, um, you know, early policy mistakes, for instance, in China, we have the loss of China probably in about, what, 47 and or shortly thereafter. And so uh, do you think there are any mistakes that we could learn from during the Cold War that would be applied now? One of the mistakes was um, uh, uh, believing that right-wing dictatorships were um, a good investment, that we could partner with anybody who is an anti-communist, and that it was necessary to partner with all anti-communists everywhere. That led us into bad partnerships with right-wing dictators across the world, many of which were just unnecessary. You understand that sometimes it is necessary to, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, uh, and we allied with the Soviet Union itself to defeat Nazi Germany. So sometimes we do need to make those allies of convenience, but we overdid it, I think. And we, we could have been more discriminating in which of those uh, dictators we allied with in the Cold War. So going forward, uh, we may need to maintain partnerships with a country like Saudi Arabia, but let's review that every year. Let's hold that at arm's length. Let's uh, hold it more loosely than we hold it, uh, our, our partnerships and alliances with democratic countries. Um, that would be one example of how I can learn lessons from the Cold War. Of course, uh, another really big mistake of the Cold War was the Vietnam War. Um, we believed that we needed to fight the Soviet Union in every theater, in every place, in every uh, country where communism was on the advance. And that's what led us into Vietnam. Um, I think that we can and should be a bit more discriminating in choosing our battles. That's, for example, why we should not go to war in Ukraine today. Despite how terrible the situation is, despite how blatant Russia's aggression has been, this is not the battlefield on which to fight World War III. We should be more discriminating and choose our battles so that we can choose when and where uh, we're most likely to win, and we're going to choose the most important battles. For my money, the most important battle is the actual uh, territory of NATO countries. If Vladimir Putin invades the next country over, if he invades Poland or Latvia or Lithuania, those are NATO members, and we should fight war to defend them. We should, we should be prepared to do anything necessary to defend NATO. Ukraine is not in NATO. Uh, it's a terrible situation. We should not fight World War III for Ukraine. And that would be another example of how we should learn a lesson from the Cold War. Choose our battles and choose only the most important ones. So that's uh, just a couple examples of, I think, how we could... Um, make the new Cold War more effective than the old one. The final topic I kind of have lined up for us today is, you know, what I, I wouldn't call it a worst case scenario because there are many, many worst case scenarios than this, but a bad scenario is that right now, if Russia is not defeated in Ukraine or doesn't feel like it's lost the war and makes, you know, say some territorial gains in Ukraine 
the military learns from its mistakes in the same way that the Ukrainian military learned from its 2014 mistakes. And after those mistakes in 2014, Ukraine reformed its military into the fighting force that it is today, and that Russia may do the same thing. And that, you know, next year, two years from now, three years from now, it's not going to be, I would imagine they're still going to be recovering from the losses that they are sustaining now. But like, say, in five, ten years' time, Russia becomes both wounded and angry and also a much bigger threat to the United States. Like, what do you think of that possibility? And uh, what do you think the U.S. should do to prepare for that? I'm going to be, um, surprisingly, a little bit more optimistic, I think, uh, which for me is a big deal. <laughs> um, I, I don't see Russia quite going down that path. There... Their era of military modernization was the past 20 years, really the past 30 years. That's when they tried to rely on a volunteer force rather than a conscript force. They tried to modernize their weapons, uh, their tactics, their command and control. And this is what they've got. They got the war in Ukraine over the past month in which everybody has seen they've not performed as well as anybody expected. Um, for them to somehow do even better at modernization over the next five, seven, 10 years. I just don't see how they could pull that off. With what help would they do that? You referenced Ukraine's modernization. That was because they had a tremendous amount of Western help. Uh, the United States came alongside Ukraine after Russia uh, annexed Crimea, and we were behind a lot of the reforms that have led them to become a more effective fighting force over the past month. Russia doesn't have an outside partner like that. They can help them modernize and fix their mistakes. Uh, China's not going to do it. And and by the way, they're welcome to try. I'm not persuaded that the Chinese would be able to give them much effective help in modernizing their military force. Um, so I just don't see that Russia has the resources, either the material, economic, or even the intellectual resources to do the kind of modernization you're suggesting they, they might embark on. Uh, plainly, militaries that uh, experience a, a loss or a defeat or something suboptimal like this, they usually go through a period of self-reflection. That does not mean that they will automatically become better than they were. Uh, keep in mind as well that Russia's economy is was already quite bad and poor, uh, you know, small, and it is now cratering. So again, what with what resources will they embark on any future modernization? They first have to get their house in order, fix their economy. It's going to be a generation before they can really uh, field a fighting force more effective than the one they have today. I think. Do you think it's a greater probability that? that Russia has more internal strife in the country itself? Yes. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I saw the headline that um, Putin ordered one branch of his security services to raid the offices of the FSB. And I haven't seen anything more on that, but it really caught my attention. FSB is the successor to the KGB. For, for him to raid the offices of the, of the KGB Something is going on in Russia that I don't fully understand, and I don't think Western media has any real insight into. It says to me that there's quite a lot of dissension and mistrust between Putin and other sectors of his government. Now, that's good for us. It says that uh, he, his attention is focused homeward, and that, that's good. It does mean that there's a risk here. There's maybe some risk of domestic turmoil and instability that we don't fully realize. Uh, and there may be other centers of power within the Russian government uh, that, um, whether real or imagined, Putin is taking steps to uh, eliminate those alternate sources of power. 
I'm hesitating so much because I don't know what's going on, but I see a headline like that. It really got my attention and I'm a little concerned about what it might mean. But 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 you're right. I, th- I think it does mean the possibility of more domestic unrest within Russia in the midterm. Well, Paul, thanks for joining us on the Provcast today again and talking to us about all of these Ukraine issues. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Always willing to come back. <laughs>